John chapter 10, and then after a bit, I'll go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, my message this morning is titled, Bearing Up and Overcoming. There are two different words implying two different things. My message this morning is in two parts. The first part is to lay the foundation for the second part, which is to challenge you to overcome, because I don't think most Christians really do. I know we've heard about it, we talk about it, we sing about it, we discuss it. I don't know if very many Christians actually do, and we'll try to show you that as we work our way through the message. Now, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, everybody knows this verse. Jesus is speaking, and he said, The thief cometh, but not for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's why he comes. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I don't know how many Christians really believe that, but they can quote that. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life on the level of abundance. Now, many people interpret that many different ways, but it includes your resources. It includes your well-being. It includes a good attitude and all the things that go with living the way God designed a man to live in this world. Now, the world's hostile to us. The world is not favorable to us. It is against everything you believe. But we are equipped by the Lord to live an abundant life in spite of all of that. God said he would prepare our table before us in the presence of our enemies. And the enemy has no right to what God has given to us. Now, that's a choice you'll have to make as to whether or not you want to pursue that. But God has given us that. On the other hand... The other contrast, there's two contrasts here. The other one is that the thief comes but to kill and to steal and destroy, to keep you from having what God offers, to dissuade you or to turn you on your path towards the ways of this world. Because once he can get you there, you're in his arena. And then he begins to do all the work that the devil does. The Bible said he's subtle, he's clever, and he does all of these things which eventually lead to your destruction, your demise, your defeat, your sadness, your sorrow, all of those kind of gloomy things. Everything that smacks of death and ruin and all evil and ill will, everything you read in the papers about all these gloomy, dismal things that are happening in the world, it is all the work of the devil. It is always the work of the devil. Well, what is man's role? Remember, Paul wrote, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Our enemy is what works through people. What's causing all the trouble? It's the devil. This is what he does. He comes to defeat you, to rob you, to subdue you, to take away all your hopes and dreams, to teach you to blame God for your problems or blame somebody. This is what he does. But Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it eternal. Not only in the life to come, but in the life right now. Now, Scripture reveals this about that truth. Number one, in order for the devil to do what he does, he has to have your cooperation. In order for God to do what he does, he needs your cooperation. Now, that means that we have a choice as to which one of these we want. It's up to us because God offers it to us. For example, the devil, the thief... His goal is to turn you to focus on the world. To see the world as where all your dreams and hopes are, where if a need ever gets met, it'll be met by some method the world offers you. Because to think that, you know, God shall supply your needs without you going out there and seeking some way to get it, the devil talks you out of that. Because he's against anything that has to do with faith. Put your finger here for just a moment. Look in Matthew 16. And verse 23, Matthew 16 and 23. You see, the goal of the thief is to focus you on the world, to make you see that everything is by the world's methods and by the world's means. You don't know hardly anybody in the world who doesn't live by the standards of the world, by the offerings of the world. By the world, man's ways, man's devices, what man has come up with. This is what 
fosters hopes and dreams and success and all of that in the world. But that's the devil's goal, to get you to see it that way. In Matthew 16 and 23, Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, what? Now, he was talking to Peter. But he's not calling Peter the devil, but he is addressing who was behind what Peter wanted to do. Now, you see that, don't you? In other words, what was inspiring Peter, noble as it was, no, no, you're not going to die, Lord, which is the very reason he came in the first place. He came to die as an offering of God for sins. And Peter could see it only in the natural. Oh, no, oh, what would we do, man? No, no, oh, no. Forbid it. You're not going to know. And Jesus said to Peter, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, was that the truth? Why is it people don't like truth? But anyway, we'll get to that probably in a minute or two. But he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Then he said two things. Thou savorest not the things that be of God. And he said that you are an offense to me. He said two things. Now, the word offense has to do with the word scandalon or scandal. I know we see scandal different than the way the Bible presents it, but it's usually translated stumbling block. What you're doing and the way you're trying to do it and the mindset that you have that leads to it, because savorous has to do with mind, your mindset, what your plans are that you have are not the plans that God gave you. It's not the way God wants you to do it, but it seems to be the right way for you to do. So you're expressing what's not of God, but of the man, of a natural man, and you're a stumbling block because the will of God is not accomplished like that. And therefore, you're a hindrance to me. And as long as you think like that, it won't work. Remember what Jesus said in Isaiah 55, your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. He said, my thoughts are higher than yours and my ways are higher than yours. And he said, what you're doing is not what I gave you to do. We can never connect and have the blessing or this abundance coming forth as long as I'm saying do it this way, but you're doing it that way. Everybody likes it that way. You're an offense to me. I wonder this morning, would God ever define the efforts of a lot of religious churches as an offense to him. If they were, and you told them you are an offense to God, would that offend them? Oh, they would be greatly offended. People don't want to know the truth. They like for you to fabricate something that makes them all right, even though it's not right. They want you to have the skill of speech to make it sound, well, you know, I'm a, but yet when you're wrong, you're wrong. But that's the way the devil works. And so he says, you savor not the things of God. And therefore, this is the way of the world. The goal of the devil is to savor the things of this world and thus become offensive to God. That's what he tries to do with all of us. To make you so worldly-minded and so thinking of how with the world's methods you can make something real spiritual. He wants us to do that. And feel sad when everybody else is doing it, and we're not. What was Jesus' goal? Jesus' goal is to seek first the kingdom of God and his right ways. That's what he offers you. Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now take a seat and rest a while because I want to tell you what in your lifetime I want from you. I want you to first seek the kingdom of God. And what's that mean? Well, the kingdom has a king. Every kingdom is ruled by a sovereign. The ruler in this kingdom is Jesus, and he is also the judge. And you seek first this king and the ways, the right ways of his kingdom. Didn't he say in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And did he say all these things shall be added? I would say that's pretty close to the abundant life. Wouldn't you? I mean, that same section of Scripture there, he had said, all the Gentiles are seek after all these things, 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 things. things. They're all seeking after that. He said, you seek first the kingdom and all these things. 
No, no, no. He said, you seek first the kingdom and some of these things will be added to some of you. No, he didn't. Oh, no, here's what he meant. You seek first the kingdom of God. If you live in America, then a lot of these things will come to some of you. But if you live in India or some dark country in the world, none of this will work for you. People think like that. Like Jesus' words are only confined to a nation that hadn't been born yet. He spoke this to people who were under captivity, who were overseen by a Roman nation. They were slaves, servants, captives. He said it to them then. But he said, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things the world is seeking after will be added to you. Remember Deuteronomy 28? If you will diligently hearken unto my word and capture these words and hide them in your heart and be willing to do them. He said, all these blessings shall be added unto you. And he begins to list them, 15 verses of blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing that almost nobody in the church really believes. Because if they did, they would act like it. Too many Christians have settled down into a state of less than what God wants because they really don't think it'll ever be better than that. See, the word savorous while ago, savorous means to have a mindset, the way you think, because how you think is how you figure, and how you figure is what you're going to do. And when God says go and you say, well, I don't know if that'll work or not, then you can't please him. You become a stumbling block because you will also tell others that it might not work and other people will become stumbling blocks until finally only a few are ever going to make it. I think Jesus said something similar to that. It is for us to labor in the word and keep on going. See, the devil needs this from you in order to do all of this. He needs you to give place to him. Remember Ephesians 4, 27, do not give place to the devil. That means you can't. That means that the devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he can devour. He's looking for you in that sad state or that kind of backed up state spiritually. Well, well, you know, I'm not. He's looking for you like that there so he can cash in on you. Because that's what he does. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul spoke about we are not ignorant of his devices, lest Satan should get an advantage of you. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of you. Can he? Well, let me ask you this. Can he get advantage of church members? Can church members, though they go to church, can they do bad? Or is being a church member a guarantee that nothing bad can happen? If you think all church members are overcomers, you need to really listen carefully. Because very few of them seem to be. I'm talking about overcoming. Not giving in. Not fainting. Not laying down, giving up. Not changing your attitude of one of victory to one of hope so. You overcome when you stay with what God says. And the devil doesn't want you to do that. He follows you around doing whatever he can do. He said this, he said, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be misled and be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Because that's where the devil works. In your mind. The reason we go into moods and get moody, though we shouldn't, we do it anyway. The reason we have these moments of sadness and sorrow and seek sympathy from each other, wanting to talk about our problems. We want to discuss what the devil's doing today in our life. And we seek out people who will listen. Oh, you poor soul. Poor soul. I tease Bonnie. I say it every now and then. She says, ain't nothing poor about me. And yet Christians lapse into it all the time. They have this gloomy look. You come to church, they fold their arms, and it seems like nothing seems to do anything. And yet I bet if those same people went to a bluegrass festival or a, some ignorant rock concert where they'd be jumping up and down, hollering and whooping, there's some way the devil has gained an advantage. He has disconnected us from what is right and reconnected us to this world's way, which is you never know. 
You never know. I mean, the best doctors in the world will tell you that it probably will work, but you know, you never know. So the world's never sure. It's never absolute. And yet God offers you absolute truths. But the devil wants to keep you from all of that because you see, the one thing God wants from us is faith. Take him at his word. Did he say he would supply your needs? Then he will. Well, it doesn't look like it. He didn't say it would look like it. He said, when you pray, believe. These are his conditions. This is what keeps us from being caught up in the world's systems. When you pray, believe. Believe what? Believe that you have or possess what you prayed for, what you asked for. And the devil said, how could that be? Do you see it? Well, where is it? If you've got it when you pray, where is it? Well, and then the devil said, how could you say you have it? I mean, how you say you're well and you're still coughing? How can you say you're well if you're limping around? How can you say you're well if you don't even look right? How can you do that? God says, don't you fall for that. Just remember, you are as you believe. You are as you believe. Lord, why couldn't we cast this demon out because of your faith? Lord, why did I sink because of your faith? Lord, why are we screaming in the back of this boat because you have no faith? Oh, you have little faith. 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 Four times. Be it unto you according to your faith. All through the Bible. That's the one thing, the one single thing that God wants. Because here's what it does. He that comes to God. Remember this, Hebrews 11. He that cometh to God must what? Must believe that he is. You don't get to see him. It isn't God that speaks and preaches to us in the morning. It's men that do this. We have to believe that they would be inspired and anointed and that God would bring forth a message. But we don't get to listen to God. That is, he doesn't stand here and speak to us. We have to believe that he is. I can't see him. I can't hear him. never have. But I must believe that he is. If I believe that he is, I will act like he is. And if I'm going to act like he is as a demonstration that I believe that he is, then it's also required that if I'm trusting him, I also act like that what he has promised me is also what he has done for me. And if he said he'll supply my needs, and I say my needs are supplied. And the devil says, well, I don't see him. And I say he didn't say we'd see him when we prayed. He said when you pray, believe. He didn't say you'd look better when you prayed. He said when you pray, believe. He didn't say you would feel better. He said, when you pray, believe. A thing that the world can't stomach. Most Christians can't stomach that. Because you're asking intelligent people to go around acting like something that hasn't happened has happened. And they would be run off. I mean, I have a college degree, somebody says. I think I got one too. And that means that you're supposed to be mentally sophisticated. That you cannot lower yourself to things that cannot be proven. See, truth is something that can be verified to the intellectual. And if you cannot verify something, then you cannot condescend to an idea, a theory, or a philosophy because that's just not an intelligent thing to do. And God comes along and he says, now, the work that I do in this world, I'm going to do through the other kind of people. Hello? Y'all. Or you folks. And so, well, let me relieve you all. That God takes people like me. People that would be easy to show something new because I've never been shown anything anyway. And so, all of a sudden, just that one moment, that one time beginning in which that wind begins to blow. To me, it was a mighty rushing wind. It's still blowing. It just, it comes into a simple life. And it says, I want you to believe what very few others will believe. I want you to take me at my word. 
I want you to live like what I've said is true. I want you to accept as true what I show you in this word. Don't try to act like things you don't see. Don't try to imitate other people. You stay with this book. You do it as I show it to you. And I want you to live like it's true. If you believe that you're healed, I want you to act healed. Get out of bed. Go to work. Do what you got to do. Act it out as best you can. Do your best. But demonstrate with your faith as much as lieth in you as possible that you are what God says you are. And when others mock and scoff at you, this will be a test of your faith. Your loyalty, your allegiance, and your reliability and trustworthiness to God. For you see, if you can't pass that test today, then you probably won't be useful to God tomorrow. And not very many are. But if you're willing to be a fool for Christ, one of those village idiots that they laugh at, that thinks that God's going to give him a new car. <laughs> Where do you get that car? And you're willing to live like that's true. But God's going to give you a new home. You don't even have an employer. You don't have any money, period. You're claiming a new house? Come on. Like naturally, the natural mind we spoke about, that can't be. But God didn't call me to be an intellectual giant that only accepts in God's word what can be verified and is socially acceptable. He asked me to believe what he said, no matter who believes it. Though none go with me, still I'll follow. The willingness to be different. That's who God is looking for. God's people are like that. They don't mind being persecuted when they believe they're right. I read a bit this week about the Amish and the Hutterites and the Anabaptists and Quakers and brethren and those of that similar belief. These people don't care if you persecute them or not. They believe they're right. They're at peace with God. As far as they know, I don't agree with their theology, but I cannot fault their willingness to live a life that is way morally and ethically way, way above the world. And yet you stop and think, you know, Christians are loud and unruly, and these people aren't, because the Bible says you shouldn't be, so we won't be. Well, Christians have heard the same thing, but do they just ignore it or discard it or disregard it? Yeah, they really do. And we look at the way other people dress in some of their unusual worship services or whatever, and then we look at our own lives, and we look at our own groups, and we see just this half-dressed, mouthy people today don't comb their hair and they don't shave and they don't tuck their shirt tails in. They just look like unkempt people running around. I love you. There's something about when God speaks to his people and he makes clear to you the way he wants you to live. And he outlines and keeps outlining. And for over several years, he keeps saying the same things to us. And you come to realize... All God wants from you is to believe that. This is what's going to lead you in that Ephesians 4 verse to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. While I may some way touch the world and affect the world for good, my goal in this life is to be like Christ. And as a preacher, it's to make disciples. Not feed the world, not evangelize the world, though we will do that. But primarily... We don't want to send sinners out to try and convert sinners. We don't want to send half-informed young folks out to try to inform the world. They can't. This message is not easy to preach, especially in other countries. It's not even easy to preach in America. It's certainly not always easy to preach in Shelbyville. But God is narrow in what he's saying to us, and he's looking for those people who are willing to be Christian. Just taking God at his word. That's what he's looking for. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Because I just mentioned it a moment ago, just hinted at it, that we're going to be tested. Shelbyville Christian Assembly, the people who come to this church, you hear things that are 
maybe a little bit beyond what is ordinary. Well, you will find out in your life, in the days in your life, the way you're living, the places you're going, you will find out if you really believe this. You may like to come and hear it, but what good is all of that if we don't live it? Or when we have a chance to live it, we don't. That's the second part. Now, look at verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That means it's what pertains to men in this world. But then it says, but God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape, not out of it, but through it, that you may be able to bear it. Now, that's a loaded verse. I don't want to just say that and leave because there's a couple things I want to get out of here so you can see it. First of all, temptation. Temptation. It's used two ways in the scripture. Temptation as a solicitation to sin. Remember the devil in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 is called the tempter. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, when I can no longer forbear... I sent to find out about your faith, lest the tempter has tempted you and our work be in vain. That happens all the time. Lest the tempter, who's a devil, has tempted you, meaning a successful deterring you away from what you've heard, and thus the work is in vain because it leads nowhere. So the tempter and temptation is that work of the devil to turn you away. Remember Jesus' temptation? When the devil led him up to a high mountain and he said, all this and all of that, if you'll bow to me, you'll get that. And you can imagine today the vision of the world, somebody in the world. I mean, you'd give me everything I ever want. If you were a girl, all the gold and jewelry and the luxury that you could ever want, all of that. A young man, you could have whatever you want. Wine, women, and song. Solomon had a thousand wives. You can have more than that. Whoa. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> and all of these kind of things. And all you have to do is just bow to me. Remember what Jesus said? Get thee behind me, Satan. And he said to Peter, too. He said, get thee behind me. Because you see, in the scripture, the tempter comes to take what you've heard, challenge it. How many of you know we're not to be argumentative? So therefore, praise God, we never argue. Well, no, we never argue with each other because we've been taught better that God doesn't want us to do that. So we don't do that, do we? Well, then if we continue to do it, what's the problem? Are we overcoming? No. No. What are we doing? We're doing what we want. The world trains people like that. Oh, man. Boy, the tempter, when he comes in, he becomes that. What do you say in Ephesians 2? The spirit that now rules in the children of disobedience? A spirit. An actual spirit that comes in into nice church people, another spirit, and it comes in to warp, to mislead, to distort, and to make unclear anymore what you've heard so that I, I don't know what to believe anymore. That's the devil. That's a spirit. Know what Paul said about that spirit in 2 Corinthians 7, 1? Therefore, dearly beloved, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. He's talking to spirit-filled Christians. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Sometimes misguided thinking is nothing more than the work of a spirit. Your stubbornness in doing what God wants you to do maybe out of fear or apprehension, is nothing more than the work of a spirit. Don't let that thing rule your life. Don't let that thing control you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
Oh, no. You see, when a temptation comes or a testing comes from God, it is always to improve you. It's never designed to cause you to fail. It's never a solicitation to sin. God always does what he does to prove your allegiance to him. Remember Deuteronomy 13, the false prophet, if that prophet or dreamer of dreams comes along and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the thing whereof he spoke come to pass, and you go as most would today, wow, this has to be God. But then what he said is misleading. He veers from the truth. He doesn't say what God said. He distorts it. I saw this in a so-called prophetic movement 20 years ago. And people in our camp were just oohing and on over, oh, the prophetic, oh, the prophets. And they were misleading masses of people. Proved it. Because they were said to be workers of signs and knowers of what's in your thoughts and hearts. And their teaching was horrible. And people followed it. Most of them are gone today. They've already gone by the wayside. Because the simplicity of the gospel is just not enough. We want to add some worldly stuff to it to make it, whoo, exciting. No. The things that God gives us to do doesn't have to be like that. God's just going to test you because he said in Deuteronomy 13, when that prophet does all of that, he said, for the Lord your God is testing you to see whether or not you love the Lord or not. Because if you love the Lord, you won't love error. If you love the Lord, you won't love an easy way that leads to death. You won't love money that will corrupt you. If you love the Lord, you're willing to just let it all go and do it his way. I was thinking one day this week, sitting back, of how many opportunities I had in times in my life when I was financially kind of strapped and I didn't have much of a car. And I thought of how many times I could have gone and gotten alone, gotten a real nice car, and gotten out of all this stuff. I wouldn't have that anymore. I wouldn't have to drive up here embarrassing everybody. And I remember the times I'd say, no. I didn't start this way to trust God to give up because it doesn't look good. If I have to walk or ride that proverbial donkey to church, I guess I will. Or get a ride. I'm certainly not going to give up because it doesn't look. It was a test. Maybe a five or six year test. Things just didn't seem to come up to that abundant level that I'm preaching about. They just sort of drift along. And it's like, Lord, is this ever, Lord, remember me down here? Remember me? And then one day, you prove yourself. It's like the Lord says to the devil, that's enough. Leave him alone. And then here it comes. All these blessings shall come upon thee and what? Overtake. I love being overtaken by blessings. That means you're giving it your best shot going the legal limit, and here they come twice that fast. Just, they just hug on you, big old gobs of blessing. They just, <laughs> they just hug on you and love on you. Oh, man. And you get up and say, quit. I'm trying to be humble. No, you throw your hands up and say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But God will prove you. James 1 and verse 2, count it all joy when you encounter trials. That's not a curse. That's not bad. It's necessary for you to be tested. Anybody can say, I believe in God, but it's when you're proven that you demonstrate that you believe in God. If you pass the test, if you pass the test, then notice that same verse says, but God is faithful. God is faithful. God knows each one of us individually. He knows our limits. He knows how much you can take. He knows where your weaknesses are. There is nobody in this room that isn't known to God. And God is overseeing every situation you walk through to make sure that it's no bigger than your ability to overcome it. But you have to fight. You have to bear up. You have to do your part. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation for sure. But like Albert Barnes said in his commentary, he said, the sense in this word is not that God would keep them without any effort of their own, 
But if they resisted temptation and sought his aid and depended on his promises, then he would be faithful. It's not like God said, oh, no, I'll take care of you anyway. No, it's like God says, do you want me to help you? Did the Bible tell us to call upon the Lord? Not assume on the Lord. We said call upon the Lord. You'll find many times God will arrange situations in your life that all you can do is call upon the Lord. There will be many divine arrangements in your life when having done all, that means you've done everything you've been taught and known to do. Having done all, he says, stand. You know what he said in Ephesians 6? Stand. That's all you can do. And you're being bombarded and barraged. And he said, put a smile on your face. What's the smile mean? I'm trusting you, Lord. Sometimes I feel like I'm going to go down, Lord. But he said, hold on. He said, hold fast. Don't give up. Quit talking about your problems to each other. Just take your needs to God. Like the Bible says, bring them before the Lord and leave them there. A few years ago, we had a men's meeting in the back here, and we watched the video of, of fathers and sons. Remember that, you men? And there was one story on there I've never forgotten, one of the best illustrations of God assisting us in temptations I think I've ever heard. And it was the story of a man who took his son, maybe 11-year-old son, like Keaton there, down to the park one day, and they were just walking around, and he said the Lord seemed to speak to him and say, ask your son, there was a chinning bar, there was one with the bar about that high, then a bar about this high, and then there was a smaller bar. And he said, ask your son to do a chin-up on that first bar. And so the father said, do a chin-up on this bar here. Okay, this is getting it. Just smile, that was easy, wasn't it? Yeah, no problemo. And he said, all right, do a chin up on this bar. So the bar was a little higher, so he had to kind of reach up and grab it. And, you know, most of us kids are there, do the chin up. You just wish that chin could hit that bar and then you drop it. I did it. I did it. The father said, that was really good. You did that good. Now, do a chin up on the high bar. And the son, it's a Christian illustration now. I don't think I can get up there. The father said, well, I didn't ask you if you could get up there. I asked you to do a chin-up. So he says, well, I don't know how to get up. I don't know how to get. The father said, I didn't ask you if you knew how to get up there. I asked you to do a chin-up. So the little boy, well, I can't jump that high. So he grabbed the pole and started shimmying. Do we still use the word shimmy? So he started shimmying himself up the pole and locked his leg. He finally got an arm up there and grabbed a hold of it. And so he's hanging in midair there, and he's struggling with all of his might. And he said, I don't, I don't think I can. The father said, I didn't ask if you thought you could. I asked you to do a chin-up. And so the little fellow was struggling and struggling. You could see his grip kind of getting loose. And so this father went over and just gently put his hands on his waist and just enough that he wasn't doing it for him. The little fellow was struggling. <laughs> he just kind of kept his hands on him, just kept just enough, gave him a little boost. <laughs> and all of that noise and racket that we make during trials, you know, he was making his little racket. <laughs> and he finally got it, and the father just made sure that he gave him just enough help to do it. So you could never say, well, the father did it. The father assisted, and he does the same thing for us. God knows what we need. He knows how much help you need when you're in trials. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but he will be with you in all of these things. He will not do it for you. He did not send the Holy Spirit to do all your fighting for you, but the Holy Spirit is your helper, and he will help you. But if you want to let go and fall to the ground, he will let you fall. And you can say amen. amen. And you can't please God because the father looks at you on the ground and said, I told you I wanted you to do a chin-up. 
Now, we're not going home until you do a chin-up or until you say, I don't want to do any more chin-up. I quit. At that point, then you're, you're free to go. And he won't bother you anymore. How many times do we in trials and struggles in our lives with anything, money, marriage, kids, doctrine, our own weaknesses and failings, how many times do we just feel like, what good is it? I can't do it. You might as well say, God isn't going to help me. He won't put his hands on my legs or my waist and give me just enough strength that I can fulfill his promise. Of course you can't do it yourself. The father knew when that little boy finally got up there, he can't do this by himself. We all need God. We need his help all the time. If we didn't need his help, then there would be no reason for him to go with us. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And about the time you start slipping, you can feel something there giving you a little boost. You're going to struggle. You're going to be sore after it's over. And you're going to say, oh, man, that was hard. But you're also going to know you have to turn to your father and say, thank you, for I couldn't have done this without you. I couldn't have made it 40-some years of my life without Jesus. I couldn't have lived as long as I've lived and have what I've got as a family. I couldn't have had this without Christ. How many times he's come in and grabbed my legs or our legs and given us a boost or kept us from collapsing and falling apart? I don't know, but far more than I realize. Because that's the way God is. There's three things you can count on God to do before we get to the second part of this. Three things that you can trust him to do. He will, one, not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able Secondly, he will make a way of escape. Now, that's an exit. But it doesn't say escape from what you're going through. But he said he will make a way so that you can bear it. The word means to bear up under. How many of you remember a little subject called Paul's thorn? Some of you have. Well, anyway, for those of you that have, you remember this, those of you that haven't, bear with me. It was said in 2 Corinthians 12 that God gave to the Apostle Paul a thorn in his flesh. Now, the visible picture of that is a thorn. I've seen thorns over in Israel. Some of them are real long. I mean, they're real big, like little daggers. And a thorn in your flesh would be a very painful, oh, you could, it's not something that you would not be aware of all the time. You're constantly aware of it. You don't have to give in to it. You still operate the best you can in spite of it. But the picture is this thing stuck in you that not even God's going to get out. So some people think it was sickness and disease. That poor Paul was just one massive pus and infection as he ran around the country. You know, well, didn't they stone him one time? Stoning is not throwing marbles at you 30 feet away. Stoning is big rocks on your head, and they try to break everything that they can with these rocks. You're almost buried under all these rocks, and they say, well, his face was disfigured, and his thinking was out. His brain, you know, and said he was just a mess of uh, yuck. And it says God raised him up. See, they didn't say when God raised him up, he restored him. God raised him up, and he brought all this mass into the city. He went back in the city, and then, of course, when it all healed, that's what he looked like. Paul said, well, they talk about me. They say my bodily presence is weak. They talk about, you know, Paul had all of these problems. He couldn't talk. Said his speech is contemptible and his bodily presence is weak. And why would you want to follow a little squirt like that? Yeah, I can imagine he was just sick all the time. I don't think he was sick all the time at all. Paul's thorn in the flesh, the Bible says, was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Buffet in the sense of agitate, make life difficult for. Well, why would he need something like that? Because he had a revelation, a New Testament revelation nobody else had. And God gave it to him in full measure so that he wrote half the New Testament. But he could never, ever escape persecution. Everywhere he went, he was buffeted by these Judaizers. 
by these tormentors and people that tried to come into the church after he left. They would come in and try to say, that's not right. That's not right and corrupt the people. He told the Galatians, once you remember this, he said, who has bewitched you, O Galatians? You were running well. Who has thrown you off course? And so Paul said, everywhere I go, Lord, I preach and I labor in the word and all. And then here comes these people behind me. He said, I sought the Lord three times. Lord, stop these people from doing this. No, this was a time the church was birthed. This was a time that foundations were being laid by the apostles and prophets of what today is called the church. And the men that's going to do this are going to be strong. And to keep you from being puffed up and being exalted over much and people looking to you rather than Jesus, he said, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Here's the point. 1 Corinthians 13, God made a way for Paul to escape. He did not give in. Either he was able to speak in tongues a lot, because that's how you build up yourself on your most holy faith. It's in there. And by doing that, he was able to keep himself strong and not cave into this, knowing that it was in the best interest of his kingdom to keep Paul from becoming a, another Jesus. Because they tried to do that in 1 Corinthians 1. And so the apostle Paul was given this message, this thorn in the flesh. They just buffeted him so that he would not be exalted above measure. You know, a lot of men today could use a lot of that. When you begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought to, that you're so important that nobody could get by without you, somebody's in trouble. No matter what the circumstances in life are that we're going to face, no matter what they are, no matter, no matter, no matter what's in front of any of you today concerning your tomorrows, there's always that mysterious uncertainty about tomorrow. Whether it's physical something or domestic something or financial something. And listen, there is never a time that you can't overcome. You can bear up on it. You can overcome. And the devil has no right to throw you off track if you will keep your eyes on Jesus. Because you don't have to cave in to how you feel and what people say. Now that brings me to side two, point two. In light of this, that we are going to be tempted and the devil wants to steal from us. God has provided a way for us not to be stolen from and destroyed. We've heard both sides. We've heard it on good days so that we can make an accurate choice about our life. Young folks, older folks. You're told the devil's going to come at you like a roaring lion. You know that. You know that he's going to get involved in your feelings and your lusts and your desires and try to convince you it's all right. I mean, after all, and you know that's going to come. And God gives you a word telling you to overcome and don't give in. Now, you've heard all of that. Then why, brothers and sisters, why do we constantly in the church commit the same problems time after time and year after year? Why is the Word of God largely ignored and we do other things? Turn to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 13. For brethren, for Shelbyville brethren and sistren, <laughs> we have been called unto liberty. We're free. Only use not liberty for an occasion to your flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But, but, Paul had the same problem in his day. Listen to this, but, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one another. This is why I've said you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of your flesh. Now, would a lust of my flesh 
Lust can be defined in lots of ways. It can be immorality. It could be food. What about a lust of my flesh is to prove myself right? I don't mean in a Christian setting where we contend earnestly for the faith. I'm talking about whenever I want to be right and you better listen. And if you don't see it the way I see it, I call you names. Oh, you ignoramus. What do you know about anything? Do Christians ever say that? How long have you been going to church? Well, you ain't learned much. Is that ever offensive? It's true. Can't deny that, but it's sometimes pretty offensive. It's just the way you said it. Then if we go out of here talking and biting and devouring, somebody said something, somebody did something, you saw something. And we start biting and devouring on one another. Let me ask you a question. Why do we do that? Have we been taught we shouldn't? If we bite and devour one another, if we fight and fuss and make a show and kind of intimidate each other, do we do that with full knowledge that we shouldn't? Then what's wrong with us? Why do we do it anyway? Because of the lust of our flesh. I'm going to get the last word in here. Go back to the left to Romans 12. Just a couple books back, Romans 12. And look at verse 17. And I'm going to ask you a question again. Why do we do this? Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. I wonder if that ever happens. If you don't want to do any better than that, I'll guarantee you one thing. You ain't going to get nothing from me. Well, you know, I asked him to come over and help me one day, and he said he would do it, and he never showed up, but he did this or that. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If he ever wants any help from me, I ain't coming. I ain't going to help him. Time out. Is that what the Lord has taught us? Is that what the Lord has taught us? Is this the way we act to show that God is our master and our Lord? Then why do we act that way when we have been taught tediously not to? It said recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I'll tell you one thing. There's a lot of people that go places where there could be trouble. Or you stay out later at night than you should somewhere. That's always, always an invitation to trouble. And if somebody tells you that's an invitation to trouble and you get offended by it, then that's the way you really are. I don't care what you've been taught. I don't care what you've heard. Your reaction is what you really are. There's a hatefulness about you that has never been to the cross. I don't want to know the truth. Don't tell me what to do. Whew. I see this all the time. All the time. Verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. How do you do that? How would you give place unto wrath? What is wrath? Wrath is anger. It's somebody's fury. Somebody's really going to do a number on you. What about turning the cheek? Do we do that? Not many young men today would dare turn the cheek, not if there were girls around, because there's so much testosterone flowing through your body that you're supposed to be bad to the bone. And somebody says something smart to you, you're supposed to say, you better stop. You know, <laughs> I'm being nice about that. There's something about us that tells us that we should defend ourselves. And somebody rolls the window down and hollers at you, you're supposed to roll the window down and holler back. Now, wait a minute. What chapter was that in? Well, that's not in the Bible. Then why are you doing it? What about that verse about a soft answer turns away wrath? A soft answer turns Well, man, everybody think I'm a coward. Maybe you're being tested to see if your loyalty will be to God or your own lust, your own personal desires, your image. 
thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Maybe God has given you a chance to come down off to that proud perch so he can use you next year. But if you want to run that mouth and give out all that chin music and do all that kind of stuff, then you're going to disqualify yourself, trust me. I am an expert in this area. I've been accosted and pulled over. I've had 6,000 tickets from God about this. I was born mouthy. I have been slapped more than anybody in this room for running my mouth. I've had more principals threaten to kick me out of school because of my mouth. The last word. What'd you say? Whatever I wanted to. You're going to flunk this course. You're going to get an F in this course. Well, give me one. And she did. Journalism class when I was in high school. I don't care, Miss Mins. Put a J down there if you want to. But I didn't want to get sent to the principal's office because Mr. Rob was a bad man. It's just that mouth. See, we laugh about it because all the TV programs are mouthy. The cartoons are all mouthy. It's insulting speech, degrading speech. And you mix a few little expletives in there so that enhances the ugliness and the cuteness of it. And you get that ingrained and you watch that kind of stuff and you laugh, that's so good. And you see people on the screen cheer that boy. And you unconsciously, because the devil's right there, and said, wouldn't you like to have a little crowd like that? Well, next time somebody says something to you, say something smart like that. That's the way you do it. Then you go to church and get your brain half beat out and you say, I ain't coming back. Do you think God brought you, any of us, me or you, to leave us alone? We're all vulnerable. Everybody in this room is vulnerable. If, if we leave each other alone with the gospel and we just tell everybody how every week how good we are, what hope is there for anybody? Unless you think church can get you to heaven. I hope it can, but it can't. We are human beings that were drug out of a horrible pit with horrible traits and characteristics about us, and none of them are worth entrance into heaven, and God is going to set you in front of him and cleanse you from all of them, or else you're going to quit and run off, but somebody's going to stay there and get cleansed, and somebody's going to heaven. And you're going to be tested and proven the rest of your life. You're going to be in situation. I avoid any situation that there might be a, a confrontation. Were you a coward? I don't have to be a coward. As old as I am, who cares? <laughs> Even as a young man, I used to know, you know, if, if we go to, what's that little old place they had in Louisville? Dog or something, Coyote or something. Kids used to like to go to it. And I used to think, that's a bad place to go. You get a bunch of testosterone running to that place and a bunch of girls have that. That's trouble. Stay away from places like that. Don't go there. I stay away, even today, I stay away from any place where there is a crowd that might get out of hand. I just don't go. I don't need that. That's not a part of my life. I have nothing in common with it. You say, well, you're old and you have no testosterone. Well, I wouldn't go too far with that, but I mean, it's, I have no interest. You see, I don't want to be led into unnecessary temptations. Do you? You don't prove yourself bad to the bone. You prove yourself faithful to God. Go back to Romans 12 again. Again, verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The people that are trying to hurt you, God will take care of that. Let him do it. Amen. Well, I want to hit him. No, no, don't do that. Well, what if he takes us to court? Then give them your cloak also. Don't fight it. <gasps> Brother Hamilton? Well, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever read the Sermon on the, on the, on the Mount that says that if, if they take you to court, to sue you at court, you give them your cloak also? Maybe we need to teach on the Sermon on the Mount then. Okay, thank you. But verse 21, be not overcome of evil, but what? 
Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. How do you do that? Before we go, let me have your brain for just a minute. How do you do that? How do you overcome evil with good? What would be evil? Anything that is not of God does not lead to the glory or the praise or the honor of God is evil. It could be the way people talk, something you're watching, seeing, a place you go. It could be evil. The Bible says we overcome evil with what? With good. That means instead of reacting in a worldly way, you just humble your head and walk off. Oh, how many young men would ever, ever do that? Well, how many young men will ever be used of the Lord when they become adults? How many of them ever? They all gave it up a long time ago, esteeming the praise and the prestige of the world to be far more important in their youthful lives than anything to do with God and the gospel and church. Why is it, brothers and sisters, why is it that we have been taught so much, but yet, 1 Peter 3, go, go look at, at the end here. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful. A lot of them are, but that's not what that means. <laughs> pitiful here means tender-hearted. And be courteous. Now notice verse, verse 9, not rendering evil for evil, not wanting to get back, not wanting to run that mouth. You know why divorce happens? It comes down to the final seal on a divorce is a mouth. A mouth that is inspired by something very demonic on the inside. Inside. That compels a man or a woman to say what they said. Harmful and mean as it was to say it. You're not going to. I'm going to. I'll probably talk about that next time because that's part of what I wanted to talk about today as an indication in this world of how we do things in the church that we have been taught a lot that we should not do. We get mad over cars. What brand? You know, some drive Ford, some drive Japanese Toyota, some drive the French Chevrolet, and some, <laughs> some drive the other. <laughs> Well, I'm telling you the truth. And, and some over this, I mean, and we just kind of argue and debate, and we won't leave it alone. Politics every year, churches in some ignorant engagement over who's the best candidate, and they're both heathens. Or is that Santa Mountain? They're heathens. They don't believe in God at all. They talk about God to get your vote. They don't believe in anything but themselves. And you're going to promote and parade that and vote for that and for that. And then cut ties with each other and call each other names over that. Surely there is a verse of scripture somewhere that would tell us we should not do that. There should be something in the Bible about biting and devouring. There should be something about avenging not yourselves. And with that a little bit said, next week, we ought to pick it up and dig a little deeper and run that sword in there and twist it a little bit. Would you bow your head with me, please? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks this morning for your, all your goodness to us. We thank you that you're long-suffering, especially this morning, that you're long-suffering toward us.
that you've given us far more than we deserve. And you've blessed us truly as we've gone out and come in and we haven't earned anything. We've been able to do chin-ups because you were there holding on to us, pushing on us. We have survived 30, 40 years of Christianity because you have kept us from falling. We have survived as a church because you have held us to yourself. I pray in the name of Jesus in the days that we're in now, these last days, the days that are ahead, that you would prompt us and prepare us for the life that we're required to live in spite of all the activity that's going to come before us. Help us to prove ourselves, O oh God, to pass our tests and to be found pleasing in your sight. Bless each and every one that is here this morning. Bless those that hear us through live streaming, that they too might be blessed. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.